Part One of Joseph Conrad: A Personal Remembrance by Ford Maddox Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part One, Section Five. The most English of the English, Conrad was the most South French of the South French. He was born in Beaucaire, beside the Rhone, Red Mariat in the shadow of the castle of the good King Rene, Daudet on the Canabière of Marseilles, Gautier in the tufts of lavender and rosemary of the little forests between Marseilles and Toulon, Maupassant on the French torpedo boats on which he served, and Flaubert on the French flagship Ville d'Ompetida with the sabran pentières and other macmahonis he painted red the port of marseilles intrigued for napoleon the third hired since there was nothing else to be hired an unpainted foreign hand from a coach-builder's yard and drove buried in actresses and the opera chorus to the races so he made the french navy too hot to hold him that however is also the spirit of the traditional british navy the writer is never tired of reciting the terms of the offence for which his great uncle tristram maddox was cashiered in that whilst drunk he swam ashore from the flagship without leave and riotously assaulted mr peter parker of valletta tobacconist the one offence is more french the other more english as above however conrad again and again recounted his marseilles exploit no doubt with the fall of mcmahon and the disappearance of any hope for the bonapartists the chance of a career for conrad in the french navy so diminished as to leave that service with few attractions conrad's influence and attaches in france were all third empire he would relate the instance of the unvarnished coach with great energy and fire and then dropping his hands with mock senility exclaim alas tel que vous me voyez now i am an extinct volcano it was not however that it was merely that diminished circumstances had reduced the team of four to the old mare or some remplaçant we would drive down to hythe or hire a motor that broke down eight times in eighteen miles and go between the shallow downs up the elm valley at the top of which he died to canterbury and at once conrad was the sailor ashore he had to find a bar and have a drink the writer with the prudishness of the englishman in his own county waiting outside for you must not have a drink in the bar of your own county town a lunch at the farmer's ordinary with five pints of beer tea in the smoking-room with whiskies brought in on the tray but in the bar never the point is a fine one but conrad though at home he was the english country gentleman and other things permitting would have bred shorthorns and worn leggings threw in his jack ashore frame of mind these considerations to the wind a drink in the bar was provided for in king's regulations you might not be thirsty it had to be conrad's biography as narrated in those days to and in the presence of the writer might as well here come in we have arrived at any rate in the writer's mind at about the time when we dropped ostensibly for good any hope of bringing a romance to a finish and took to collaborating on the inheritors 
by that date the writer had heard enough of conrad's autobiography sufficiently repeated to have a rounded image of his past such an image at any rate as conrad desired to convey for like every inspired raconteur conrad modified his story subtly so as to get in sympathy with his listener he did it not so much with modifications of fact as with gestures of the hand droppings of the voice droopings of the eyelid and letting fall his monocle and of course with some modifications of the facts so the story afterwards used in a smile of fortune told to the writer alone was one thing and told to his sprightly very intelligent aunt madame paradoski was something quite different it would be thinner less underlined more of a business-like subject for treatment if told to the writer alone when told to the french lady who was also a novelist it would be much livelier much more punctuated with gestures and laughs much more pimente in fact the story of a sailor's bonne fortune it was the only story of a bonne fortune that the writer ever heard told by conrad and the note may as well here be made that in all our extreme intimacy lasting for many years neither of us ever told what is called a smoking-room story we never even discussed the relations of the sexes so at the turn of the century for the inheritors must have been published about nineteen o one and having been written rather fast must have been begun in nineteen hundred the history of conrad appeared much as follows to the writer he was born not of course physically in Bolkar, but in that part of poland which lay within the government of kiev in ukrania in the black lands where the soil is very fertile he was born towards eighteen fifty eight at any rate he was old enough to remember the effects of the polish revolution of the early sixties say eighteen sixty two the oldest the first memory of his life was of being in a prison yard on the road to the russian exile station of the vologda the cossacks of the escort these are conrad's exact words repeated over and over again were riding slowly up and down under the snowflakes that fell on women in furs and women in rags the russians had put the men into barracks the windows of which were tallowed they fed them on red herrings and gave them no water to drink my father was among them the implication is of course that conrad's father died of thirst behind those windows that were tallowed so that the men should not look out and see their womenfolk actually of course conrad's father did not die in these circumstances but it was not until quite lately that the writer was aware of his misapprehension this however is the exact history of a relationship conrad remained with his mother in exile until he was nine or ten then his mother being threatened with an immediate death from tuberculosis they were allowed to return to poland conrad's mother was a woman of great beauty of physique and of character her face was oval her black hair braided round it her eyes intent her manner quiet but spirited his father was less effectual the prime mover of an abortive revolution a fact which conrad deprecated his father was not so dark as his mother untidy bearded with high cheekbones he was the proprietor not professionally but as a revolutionist 
of a famous newspaper in which he wrote a great deal he was constantly writing his style was not very distinguished of his father conrad spoke always deprecatorially this was partly politeness whoever you were his interlocutor all that pertained to you your father and all your ancestors must be superior to his it was his poor little books his poor little brains his poor little exploits set against all your splendours partly too it really pained him to think that his father had been a revolutionary and an unsuccessful revolutionary at that as if he had been prenatally connected with something not shipshape for his mother he had on the other hand that passionate adoration that is felt by the inhabitants of latin and western slav countries for their mothers and that seems so foreign to the anglo-saxon oddly but comprehensively when he spoke of his mother as revolutionary he was full of enthusiasm for him the polish national spirit had been kept alive by such women as his mother the men were hopeless again not shipshape this was not difficult to understand the men were prohibited from living a life of their own the only career that the russians allowed them to study for was that of the law so they were all either lawyers or babblers or both without any practical training this for generations and generations as for class the kurzeniaskis were country gentlemen for all the world like an english county family with land lived on and owned since the darkest ages untitled but aristocrats to the backbone what is called in england good people a term which is untranslatable into any other language and incomprehensible even to americans this made conrad feel at home in kent many times he said so the feudal spirit there survived in the territories of the great landowners conrad had an uncle paradowski who was a great pan guardian to the children of half the noble families of that government he had a longish as if squared face a long nose meditative hands that were always pausing in some action and long brownish hair that fell rather germanly on the collar of a velvet coat it was to his great country house that the emissary of palmerston had come the writer's friend count potoki tells the writer that the name of this uncle must have been bibrowski the name Paradowski remains however very firmly in the writer's mind conrad was inordinately proud and fond of this uncle and fully four-fifths of his conversation when it referred to his polish days concerned itself with this relative there were for instance the Paradowski dragoons a famous russian regiment named after him or his ancestors similarly in early days conrad always wrote and pronounced his name as kurzenowski the correct transliteration would appear to be korzenowski it does not seem to matter much this uncle stood well with the russians before that abortive revolution he had been a close friend of one of the grand dukes and had had a part in drafting the constitution that the czar had proposed to grant to poland 
in the revolution he had taken no part not because he was indifferent to the interests of poland but because he knew it must prove abortive and cause much suffering and persecution to the russian poles besides it brought about the rescinding of the constitution after the revolution he busied himself with alleviating the sufferings of his compatriots he fed legions of the starving dispossessed he secured the return of their patrimonies to the children of the exiled amongst these was conrad his uncle secured the return to him of half the great confiscated estate of his father and got him permission to reside in russian poland in his own great house the emissary of palmerston had by the by been sent away with the flea in his ear here for years and years conrad read marriott and fenimore cooper and it was one of the little ingenuous pleasures of conrad to remember that in paris after waterloo as recorded in the memoir more crowds followed sir walter scott and fenimore cooper on the boulevard than ever followed the king of prussia it pleased him to find one of his early heroes thus blessed by fame of the bronze lungs to this information the writer added the other that in that same paris of that same date ashton smith the milor of incredible wealth and spleen was according to the journals followed about by crowds even greater than attached themselves to the czar of russia out of a sort of a tacit politeness we never tried to decide whether the king of prussia or the czar of russia had the larger following but ashton smith was to have been the central figure of our novel about the execution of ney the milor with the spleen intervening nearly successfully to save the beau sabreur this not because he felt any sympathy for ney but because he desired to put a spoke in the wheel of wellington and blucher and all the fighting fellows who were beginning to think themselves of much too much importance though merely younger sons however he made too much progress in the affections of the czar's egeria so ney was shot by the czar's orders just opposite the clotherie des lilas on a spot occupied now by a station of the Seoul railway to spite ashton smith the writer never understood why it was always night in poland so however it remains for him a long white house in the dark with silver beeches in an avenue or ghostly in groups indoors was conrad right through adolescence forever reading in the candlelight of an immense stately library with busts on white plinths and alternate groups of statuary in bronze his uncle would be in a rather subterranean study at the other end of the vast house writing his memoirs when these two ever met the writer never knew of meals or even of bed he heard nothing it was a perpetual reading as for the uncle's memoirs years after not so long ago the writer found conrad in a state of extreme perturbation he said my dear fowler you must go with me to boulogne you'll have to fight the second of course it's always done in polish dueling it is part of what gives vagueness to this narrative that conrad always credited the writer with an almost supernatural prescience as to his conrad's most remote or most immediate past he would say you remember when i was on the flower of surabaya 
old corbin the supercargo had that shaving set that i lost on the duke of sutherland naming two ships and a supercargo of whom the writer had never yet heard so on this occasion the writer naturally agreed to go to boulogne and pictured an immense black moustached opponent in a busby a frogged dolman top-boots and a cavalry sabre whose bare blade he caressed with his left hand and it was not for several days during which we made preparations for the journey that the reason for our journey itself was made clear to the writer conrad was too distressed to talk about it it appeared that the uncle paradalski almost viceroy of russian poland and guardian to half the sons and daughters of the polish nobility of his province had had unheard-of opportunities of learning all the matrimonial and family scandals of his neighbours all these he had set down in his journal and this journal had just been published it had caused the wildest consternation in poland and as conrad was the legal heir of m paradowski the responsibility for the publication was considered to be his the son of one of the most horribly aspersed couples had therefore challenged conrad and was coming to boulogne conrad was horrified to the point of madness and he was justified that poor fellow shot himself in despair over the revelations in the railway carriage on the journey so we never fought conrad emerges then from the glamorous shadows of poland making the grand tour with a lively young tutor for the first time in venice from a window he saw in the Gridecca a ship a british schooner as to biography during the next few years the writer becomes hazy conrad himself perhaps wished to throw a haze over a part of his life that was for him a period of indecisions at one time he would say that he had determined to go to sea years before when first reading mariat at another that a blaze of desire sprang up in him on sight of that british schooner with the emotional lines of her hull at one time that he rushed back to poland to communicate his decision to his uncle at another that he finished the grand tour on the conventional lines but arguing with his tutor and at last finally breaking very gradually the news to his uncle his uncle thought him mad there need be no doubt about that no pole had ever gone to sea all poles had always been lawyers conrad must not go to sea but must study for the law at the university of was it uh, lemberg conrad at any rate went to marseilles and entered the french navy by the influence of his uncle the poles have always had great influence in the chancelleries and ministries of europe he was granted a commission in that service in it he remained an indefinite time leaving with the rank he was specific as to that of lieutenant de torpilleurs de la marine militaire française during that time on the french flagship via de Ompetier, he had witnessed the bombardment of a south american town the town comes back to the writer as caracas but apparently caracas is inland so the flagship can hardly have bombarded it perhaps conrad went with a landing party inland to that capital in that way he saw the landscape of the track to the silver mine of nostromo 
there followed the period of sailor ashorishness in marseilles with the bonapartist aristocracy after the episode of the unvarnished coach loaded with actresses conrad telegraphed to his uncle to come and pay his debt and embarked on his carlist adventure this is told sufficiently as conrad used to tell it by word of mouth in the episode of the tremolino in the mirror of the sea when taking this episode down from conrad's dictation as indeed when taking others of his personal recollections down from dictation at times when conrad was too crippled by gout and too depressed to write the writer noticed that conrad sensibly modified aspects and facts of his word-of-mouth narrations the outlines remained much the same the details would differ as told by conrad and the writer must have heard all conrad's stories five times and his favourite ones much more often the carlist adventure was as follows at the date of his leaving the french service the carlist war was being desultorily waged in the north of spain the carlists were the supporters of don carlos the legitimist pretender to the spanish throne the cause of the carlists sufficiently appealed to conrad it was legitimist it was picturesque and carried on with at least some little efficiency it offered a chance of adventure in company with like-minded friends then conrad set to work at providing rifles for the army of the pretender they purchased a small fast sailing ship the tremolino beautiful name and of all the craft on which conrad sailed this was the most beloved by him in our early days her name was seldom off his tongue and when he mentioned her his face lit up nay it lit up before he mentioned her the smile coming before the name to his lips the writer never heard in those days what make of ship she was he was expected to know that conrad would say you know how the tremolino used to come round so the writer imagined her as a felucca with high bowed white sails against storm clouds and rust-coloured cliffs she was the beautiful ship as turgenev was the beautiful russian genius pacing up and down conrad would relate how they ran those rifles the method was this they would load the tremolino at marseilles with oranges bound ostensibly for bordeaux or any up-channel port thus if any spanish gunboat accosted us we would have a perfectly good bill of lading out in the channel we would meet a british schooner and throwing the oranges overboard we would load up with rifles those particular sentences with their slightly unusual use of the word would conrad never varied he would have begun his story unemotionally with such historic explanations as his hearers seemed to need then he would come to the tremolino and his face would light up this emotion would last him for a minute or two at as it were the angle where spain turns down from france in the mediterranean as if the tremolino had got thus far and was just going through the blue water with her burden of oranges he would render his voice dry to say either the method was this or our modus operandi was as follows and then after taking a breath out in the channel we he would then go on to explain the necessities they had when making that landfall 
you could bribe any spanish guarda costa on land with a few pesetas or a bottle or two of rum but the officers of the gunboats that patrolled the coast were incorruptible so one night the landlord of the inn omitted to show the agreed-on light he was drunk in the morning we saw a spanish gunboat steaming backwards and forwards in the narrow offing the bay was a funnel like this we ran the tremolino on a rock set fire to her swam ashore and got country clothes for a disguise and proceeded to marseilles as best we could penniless without a penny in telling these stories conrad would thus occasionally duplicate his words trying the effect of them then we would debate what is the practical literary difference between penniless and without a penny you wish to give the effect with the severest economy of words that the disappearance of the tremolino had ruined them permanently for many years do you say then penniless or without a penny you say sans le sou that is fairly permanent un sans le sou is a fellow with no money in the bank not merely temporarily penniless but without a penny almost always carries with it in our pockets if we say then without a penny that connoting the other we arrived in marseilles without a penny in our pockets well that would be rather a joke as if at the end of a continental tour you had got back to town with only enough just to pay your cab fare home then you would go to the bank so it had better be penniless that indicates more a state than a temporary condition or would it be better to spend a word or two more on the exposition that would make the paragraph rather long and so dull the edge of the story it was with these endless discussions as to the exact incidence of words in the common spoken language not the literary language that conrad's stories always came over to the writer sometimes the story stopped and the discussion went on all day sometimes the discussion was shelved for a day or two there were words that we discussed for years one problem was as has already been hinted at how would you translate bleu francais as applied to a field of cattle cabbage the large jersey sort of whose stalks varnished walking sticks are made or bleu du roi and again what are the plurals of these adjectives in french as a side issue that problem we discussed at intervals for ten years the problem of the field of cabbages not of course the plurals now we shall never solve it conrad then again telegraphed to his uncle to come and pay his debts the writer used to have a great uncle whose one expedient in life was to take a cab one day this gentleman walking past exeter hall met a lion exeter hall in the sixties was a menagerie when he was asked what did you do he would reply in tones of mild disgust at the questioner's want of savoir-faire do why i took a cab in the same way conrad used to telegraph to his uncle to pay his debts and come to marseilles to do it he embarked in a french messagere steamer as a hand before the mast and as has been said made one voyage to constantinople seeing tents on the hills above the european city he returned to marseilles 
perhaps his uncle had not yet arrived to pay his debts or did so only just after or perhaps he came three times to marseilles conrad used occasionally to let drop that as the writer knew he had run through three fortunes in his life at any rate the image remaining to the writer is that as conrad sailed away a ship's boy in a british brig bound for lowestoft pan paradoski stood on the edge of the canabiere like a great land lion lamenting on the brink of the water his beloved ugly duckling of a nephew who should have become a seal a sea lion end of section five